0: the five solos of the protestant reformation okay so we are looking at solo christo and before we started um i wanted to actually i don't know has anyone seen the movie luther by any chance a few of y'all okay good movie i highly recommend it all right so what we're mm-hmm. attempting to do right now is we're going to see a clip um from that movie and i'll give you a little bit of background about it uh it's basically martin luther it's uh, when he was very young he was he was in a monastery and he struggled with a lot of issues at that time period in his life and he uh, there were a lot of issues that that he and a lot of other reformers were struggling with and so we're gonna see this is an example of of how he would often struggle with this issue and it's a conversation basically that he's having with an older monk uh, that really influenced him a lot in his life okay so that was um, something that happened on early on in Martin Luther's life and something he struggled about. Um, reformers like Martin Luther struggled with a lot of issues. Um, they didn't have a very clear understanding of what kind of uh, God it is that we're worshiping. Uh, they didn't, they had a, didn't have a clear understanding about sin, and they, and they were scared to death of uh, approaching God. And another thing that also reformers like Martin Luther had to deal with was they saw a lot of corruption within the church as well, and that's something we'll talk about later. But the first thing I want to look at is um, the first issue that they that uh, people, reformers at that time were dealing with was sin. Um, so I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a background information about uh, what it's not maybe maybe not today's view about what sin is, but at the time the church at that time had a certain view about sin, and everyone who lived during that time period, prior to the Protestant Reformation, had a certain view about sin. So some of you pro- have probably already heard of this, but during that time, they believed sin had two consequences. There were two types of sin. They believed in grave sin, and they believed in temporal sin. Now, grave sin basically means that you have rejected God, and you've rejected Christ, and then so you're eternally damned. You're separated from God. And then every other type of sin fell into temporal sin. So that was everything else aside from that. And the church at that time taught that um, when you died, because of your temporal sins, you were sent into a state of purgatory. And so you would spend this time in purgatory, and no one knew the exact time, but it was considered a purification process, something that was very painful. But at the end of it, you will be able to enter heaven. So that's what they... Believed in, and so all of this uh, because of te- this issue of temporal sin, it it created a lot of issues with people. You know, the, the uh, sin had a really strong hold on everyone at that time. People were always worried about sin and their, about temporal sin. You know, they don't, no one knew how much time they were going to spend in purgatory. The, another teaching that they had at that time was something. Um, that the church at that time called a wonderful exchange they believed that everyone basically fell into three categories they believe that you had your saints that were already in heaven who had entered heaven they believed that there were those who were already in purgatory and there were those right now who are on earth and they believed that, that it was taught that there was a link between all these three groups of people and they call this the wonderful exchange and the trick about it is what one group did whatever you did here on earth it could affect those who were in purgatory and also what the saints who had previously lived on earth what they had done it would also affect us and somehow all of this affected all this was also summed up by something else called the treasury this was something else that was also taught simply put like the treasury at that time was taught as a spiritual bank account if you want to call it that way And basically it was something where you can accumulate all of the spiritual good deeds that you do. And so what makes up the treasury? What makes up your spiritual bank account? So the things that make it up are the works of Christ the Redeemer, the prayers and good works of the Virgin Mary, and then prayers and good works of everyone else, of all the saints who've come since then. Now, the problem with this type of teaching and people like Martin Luther, why they were always beating themselves up was because no one knew. If you look at this pie chart, no one knew how big this part really is, right? Everyone knew about this, but no one really knew how big or what percentage that really made, made up. No one really knew how much, you know, how much is good enough. You know, is, you know, if I fast and pray today, how much time does that take off my time in purgatory? Well, what if I do something else tomorrow that causes sin? You know, does that set me back? So. It was a very difficult issue. People would always um, struggle with it. And because of that, the, the church at that time had a really strong hold on people. And they controlled people's lives. They controlled people's behaviors because of that. So how do you deal with this? How do you, people at, that, at this time, how did they deal with it prior to the Protestant Reformation? Uh, one of the ways that they did deal with this Dealt with this were through indulgences. Now, indulgences—if um, you look up this—is de- this a definition if you can find on the Vatican archive. But an indulgence basically it was taught that it was a remission of your temporal sins. So, if you wanted to take care of your temporal sins, you know you were you had to obtain an indulgence, and so you can use that indulgence to go into your spiritual account, your bank account over there. Well. This led to some strange policies by the, by the church and also by a lot of other wealthy people at that time. Basically, how do you obtain an indulgence? You know, there were several ways you could obtain it. Either you could fast or pray, you could give a charitable contribution to the church, or you could view relics. Okay? I'll explain each one. So fasting and praying, okay, we, we all understand that charitable contributions how that worked was let's say for example you wanted you know the pope wanted to build a, a cathedral or some building right he would send certain priests out to a village and then that that priest would preach certain sermons and the sermons were always the same they would always say, he would have a, a sermon on on heaven and he would have a sermon on purgatory and talking about how your loved ones are suffering right now in purgatory and how purgatory is such a terrible place and then they would talk about hey you can do something about it it was almost like an infomercial you know (laughs) you could do something about it you can uh, just uh, just by making this contribution here you can get a seal stamped certificate that shows that hey you've obtained an indulgence that you can use towards either for a loved one in purgatory a, a father a mother a sibling or a spouse, you can use it for someone there or you can use it for yourself. So that was one way of obtaining an indulgence. And then the other way was to view relics. So during that time period prior to the Reformation, they had, relics were a big business. So if you wanted to raise money in a certain way, during certain times of the year, either really uh, wealthy people or maybe even even the church would, would put out these relics to be viewed. And they would put certain spiritual claims on these relics, like they would give an example of, "Hey, this is the skull of John the Baptist, right? And if you give us some money and you can say some prayers to it, you can obtain an indulgence too—an indulgence." Or they would say, "Hey, these are these are four hairs from the Virgin Mary, right, from her head," or um, you know, or a, a thorn from Christ that was on Christ's brow, right. They would have all kinds of relics that they—that was a big business. People collected these things, and people believed that that if you prayed toward them and said a prayer to them, you can obtain an indulgence that way. So as you can see, there was such a stronghold in people, and there—but there were people like Luther that you know struggled with this because they—they were wondering what kind of God is this, right, that we worship, and they wondered, you know, I mean how How do I ever get to heaven? how am i sh- How can I be sure that I can get to heaven? The more reformers started to uh, to examine this, this issue, they realized you know they they, they, they started to the question you know who should i whose authority should I obey? you know Should I obey the authority of the of the scripture or the authority of the church but they had the hard, they had a hard time with understanding the authority of the church because they would change things constantly right. And so the more they, as they studied it, they realized that the authority of the Scripture is higher than the authority of the church. So once we, they accepted that, they started to ask some other questions, some more basic questions, questions that we hear today. And, and that's what I found was the interesting thing. That it's the same questions that we ask today that people who are seeking earnestly after Christ are, see, are, are asking today. Basic question, you know, what must I do to be saved? And who is Jesus, right? And who is this person, right? People today, if some uh, uh, people, if when they ask this question about Jesus, if you know, the only way you can learn about Jesus, well, you have to read the Scripture, you have to look at his teachings, you have to look at his claims. He made several claims. He he said that you know, in John fourteen six, he claimed that I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He had some incredible sermons. You know, he gave the Sermon on the Mount, and people who walked, who heard his. Sermons walked away amazed. They had never heard anyone give a sermon like that, not before and sentence after. And then they had to look at Jesus' life, too. He was an incredible person, right? He came from a very poor background, no education. Um, yet, you know, he, he didn't have a, a school that he opened on his own, but he, yet he taught so many people. Um, he trained disciples. He, he, he healed people did things, um, did, uh, did miracles of healing that no one else had done and never even charged them for it. So, so if you look at all of that, you had to make a choice. And people today who are seeking after Christ also have to make that choice who, about him. Either, either he's a fool, he's a crazy person, or he's a fraud, or he is who he actually says he is. He is the Son of God. Once you accept that, you know, that he isn't a fool because he knew what he was doing, or he wasn't a fraud because he was willing to die for what he, what he claimed, what did he die for? Right? This was the other issue that Luther st- struggled with it was sin. What was the punishment for sin? Right? His debt, exactly. And when they studied scripture, they realized that, like from Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is debt. But also forgiveness also requires debt. And it says in Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So there's an incredible price that has to be paid. And the only person they realized, if you accept that he is the Son of God, you realize that he is the only one who can pay that terrible price. So at the cross this is what Christ did for us. When the reformers studied this, it was almost like the first time they had heard this. Right? They had heard, they realized that Christ was our substitute. Christ himself said in Mark 10:45 that he came as a ransom for many. And Paul said in Romans that you know, just as sin entered through this world, one man just as sin entered this world through one man, one man Christ was able to die for many. And even Christ said that he was going to pour out his blood for many as well. So, because sin was such a terrible thing, Christ, someone had to take our place. And that substitute was Christ. But not only was our, he our substitute, he was also our propitiation. You know, there was a certain punishment that, that Christ endured there on that cross. On that cross, he endured basically all of God's wrath. In Isaiah, Isaiah 53, four, uh, verses 4 through 5 summed it up best when it says he was crushed for our iniquities. Christ died to bear our Christ died to bear our grief, sorrow, and iniquities. Because of this act, because of what Christ did on the cross, God's demand for justice was satisfied. And the last thing, because of what Christ did at the cross, it was complete. Christ said it himself. No one else had to say it was, but Christ Himself said, that it is finished. In John nineteen thirty, when he hung on that cross and we, when he bore all of God's wrath. And because of that, they realized there was nothing else that they needed. Reformers realized that they didn't have to depend on other things. They didn't have to depend on, um, at the time, communion was taught that, taught that it was a sacrifice. They were, it was taught that when we took the Lord's Supper, it was taught that it was a sacrifice that appeased God. But for us, it's different from the way we view it. We view it as something as a a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, something we're thankful to God for, not as something that's going to appease Him. That work is already finished, and it was all completed by Christ. So since Christ has finished all that work, and since He's bore the whole wrath of God for our sins, how do we receive the benefits of Christ? Let me go one back, one slide back, also, because of this, it changed everyone 's view. all right The reformers had to reject a lot of doctrines because of this. They had to reject um, the main thing the first thing they rejected was this idea that there was a spiritual account that you could accumulate all these things, and because they didn't need that, we don't need that they had to re- they rejected the the idea that there was this place called purgatory, and they rejected the sale of indulgences they rejected. These prayers you can do for the dead, and most importantly, they realized that there was no need for a priest or an alt, or altars for some or um, a communion where you offer a where you're offering continually offering sacrifices to God. They realized we don't need priests; all we need are ministers, ministers, and pastors so how do we, how do you receive the benefits of what Christ did? Paul said to Timothy. Timothy, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The same person, Christ, who died for us, is also interceding for us. And why, how, come, how come he's able to intercede for us? Because he, he was resurrected from the dead. He was raised from the dead. Peter says, because of this, we are a royal priesthood. So, this changed everything. This changed the whole idea that people had at that time, the, the whole mindset Now, there wasn't any need anymore for you to bring your request to the Virgin Mary. There wasn't any need to bring your request to certain relics, right? There wasn't a need for you to bring your requests and petitions to um, saints, former saints who were died and passed on. You You can approach God directly through Christ. You have a mediator. We have someone who can mediate for us and who intercedes for us continually, who is seated at the right hand of God. And so that basically sums up solo Cristo. Christ, He's our only Savior, our only sacrifice, and our only mediator. All right? So that's pretty much all I have for solo Christo. And I guess at this time, I'm going to open it up for questions. That, that was... I would say probably, when I, when I was reading about Luther's biography, it said pretty much at the end of his life, at least in Germany, it had spread quite a bit. Um, I know in his home country, that in, Germ- in Germany, it had spread quite a bit. I'm not sure exactly how quickly it spread through the rest of Europe and from there, but I know maybe, I think he, Luther passed away, I think, when he was 72, I think. And he uh, at the end of, end of his life, I know that it, it had spread quite a bit. It was It was pretty accepted uh theology at his at the end of his life yeah and, and it's still prevalent today you know even though it's not as prevalent as it was over the over everyone during that time period, but today it's still prevalent i mean not everyone fully realizes that, you know that, that you don't need to bring your request to a saint that was that had lived a certain number of years ago or or even to the Virgin Mary or or through any or through it just or at the feet of some statue. Right. Yeah, every time yes. Did, yeah. That. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, they believe that and that's why they they believe it was you had to do it all the time to to please God. It was you had to appease God continually for it. And it's still part of mm-hmm. the doctrine. Oh yeah, it's still part of it. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They had something, I think, that was in be- in yeah. between it's that. Kind of concept, yeah. When we talk about yeah. Yeah. Basically, I guess they no longer view it as something that's something that'll appease God or a, as a sacrifice over again, but they see it as something that'll. It's supposed to be something as a, as a praise and thanksgiving. Um, Go ahead.
1: You go back listen to it's important to come to all of them. <laughs> 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 okay. Sorry,
0: brother. Sorry,
1: brother. All right.
0: Go ahead. Is it both now? Yeah, they had all you know, kinds. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, they have all kinds of relics. <laughs> yeah. David. All right, I'm going to t- turn it over to David and he will answer. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Well, obviously, by me being up here, what that means is I drew the short straw yesterday. <laughs> How's that? Is that better? We up? I drew the short straw. We. Were <laughs> it came up last week, the issue is, what's the difference between ordinance and, uh, and a sacrament? And uh, we, deba- we talked about it via email this week, those of you who are teaching the class. And we thought we needed to address it, because... What's important to understand is what it's not. Okay, um, we—if you listen up front—we hear those terms used fairly interchangeably in this in this body. Some people are very specific about what they say; some aren't. When a Roman Catholic uses the term sacrament, they mean something very different than what we do. Like last week, when Philip used the term sacrament, to them the the sacrament is a means of justifying grace. You understand? When you're baptized into the church as an infant, Adam's original sin is done away with. And at that time, you're in standing, you stand justified before God. At that time, going forward, you then commit uh, venial and mortal sins. Venial sins take you out of fellowship with God. Mortal sins take you out of justification. You're now short of God's grace. Okay, so we have to do certain things to get back into grace, to get back into be justified again. We do things like the mass, you pen, penance, which is what Jake was talking about. You view the relics. If you add up all the shards of all the crosses in the world, you probably have a Home Depot lumber department. Okay, <laughs> I mean th- this. I mean that. That's the issue of relics. They're, they're, it's it's a godforsaken thing. It's, it's terrible. When we use the term ordinance or sacrament, we're not saying that. Okay. Now, within the Protestant view, there are probably two, say, two branches. There's a traditional Reformed, oh, going toward a Lutheran view, and uh, let me step back. There's kind of a traditional view where it is a memorial. Okay. It's a marker. It's a it's a symbol. Okay. And there are those in this body. They tend toward the uh, the Baptist line of uh, uh route where they say these are just these help you remember what Christ did for you. Okay? Baptism. It's a testimony. And I, and I it's my it's an act of obedience, a witness to the world. It's my it's it's a testimony of what Christ did for me. When we come each week, we have the Lord's Supper. It's an ordinance, it's an it's an act of remembering, it reminds me of what Christ did, it causes me to reflect upon my sin. And it's 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 a marker for lack of I'm going to use the term a marker, a symbol, uh, a memorial, of uh, a, a remembrance. Okay, there's also a view within Protestantism that says that these ordinances of Christ are are a means of I'm going I'm to say it's sanctifying grace. Okay, there's nothing in the act itself that's, that's mystical, that gets you God's grace. But these are things that Christ has instituted. He instituted baptism. He instituted the Lord's Supper. We understand these as being two ordinances. I might also throw in that we also have the Word and the proclamation of the Word. Okay? And through these things, through, through the Lord's, through the, 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 the baptisms, your first act of obedience of Christ, okay? I think it's one reason why we have a believer's baptism or a creed baptism. Okay? When I obey Christ in my first act of obedience, Christ uses that to strengthen me, to cause me to love Him more. The Holy Spirit works through that, not in that, nothing mystical, but that I draw closer to Him. So in that sense, for a believer, for one who has placed his faith in Christ and has been justified by Christ alone, that act of baptism is a means that the Holy Spirit uses to draw me closer and is a is a means of sanctifying grace, of making more Christ-like. Thus, each week we come and we take the supper, okay? And when we take the supper, we come before Him. We look at Christ's work on the cross, His broken body, the life that He lived. We look at His blood poured out and remember it in the cup. And the Holy Spirit uses that as we reflect, right? It's very important that we, uh, that we come properly prepared before the Lord for the supper, that we confess our sins, that we stand right before Him, or at least not right as in perfect, but right and acknowledge it, and we properly take the Lord's Supper. right. And in that, the Holy Spirit uses that supper for a believer as a means to strengthen us and to draw us closer to Christ, to cause us to be more Christ-like. So in that sense, when a Reformed person Says that they believe that the element or the the, sacram- the elements are a sacrament. What he's saying is that is a means of sanctifying grace. There's nothing magic in that grape juice, nothing magic in that bread. But when we in the corporate assembly of believers, when we sit before the Lord and we take that body, the Holy Spirit uses that service, that supper, as a means of of making us drawing us to himself, where we are more christ like in our thoughts and our heart and our affections, okay, so yeah, ordinances are sacraments, so when we we use the term sacrament, understand the way that you hear someone saying they're not speaking of the Roman Catholic manner of sacrament as a means to be justified, made right before God, but they're saying it is a When a person says sacrament from a Reformed or Lutheran perspective, they're saying it is a means by which God draws us to himself, makes us more Christ-like. In the same way, we have the proclamation of the word, right? For a believer, the Holy Spirit works through that word, through that proclaiming of the word, through that reading of the word, and and he uses it to conform us to the image of Christ. So in the same thing. The word is a means of God's grace to us. It is His kindness poured out upon us. So yeah, there's the gift of baptism. There's the gift of the supper. There's a the gift of the word. So I would say that when we use the term ordinance or sac or, or sacrament, that's the way I think you'll hear the a Protestant those here at CBC uh, using it. Is that? I mean, I think that is one reason why it's so important that you do be right. I mean, Paul said some of you are, what you're doing, he said to the Corinthians, is not the Lord's Supper. You're eating and drinking, it's not the Lord's Supper, and some of you are getting sick and dying because of it. He said, eat and drink. Fill your bellies at home. When you come as a body, we're doing something else. Okay? So we're just eating and drinking, right? That's not the Lord's Supper. It it is an act of communion. Clifford, you... So that's... That's kind of my thought process along those lines. You know, let's, let's play that out, right? When we, when we come in there on Sunday mornings, right? examine our hearts. Get right before the Lord. Because the Holy Spirit is an opportunity for God to work through that meeting to conform us to the image of Christ. Parents, are you letting your children take the Lord's Supper? Are they cognizant? Are, do they have the ability to recognize their sin and to get right before the Lord? Or is it just a snack to them? It's it, it's a weighty thing, parents. this supper, I think this supper each week is a is a weighty event. All right. Same with baptism. We just don't we don't let willy nilly in the in the first in the first century to stand as a believer and be baptized was to put your name on the, to, to, to side Christ, and quite frankly, not to die in, in the act of baptism. And quite frankly, you may give your life, you may give up your family, you may give up your job as a Jew, right? You may be declared an atheist by the Romans because you didn't acknowledge all these other gods. You may sacrifice your life, so that act of baptism was a, was a huge event. Okay. We're trying to clarify ordinances and uh, sacraments. You mentioned three ordinances. Well, I'm 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 just kind of throwing the third being the ministry of the word. Right. Is that you can say that we don't typically think about that as an ordinance. I'm more of dangerously on the fly kind of threw it out as these are the thre- I see these are things that Christ ordinances institutions that Christ has used to work grace right, in our going lives. Going beyond that, going beyond that. Yep. What other sacraments they
0: consider that are sacraments that we don't see? Oh, to
1: the, the Roman Catholic, right? Roman Catholic, there's seven. Uh, they wonder, what we have uh, marriage, we have indulgences, we have baptism, we have the Lord's Supper, we have penance. That's five. Extreme unction, right before death. And there, there is one more. All these are ways where you have fallen out of grace. You've come up short in that last third. So you've got to do something to close that. Luther said... Because he's looking at his heart, right? Jesus said it's not what comes out of your... It's not what goes in that makes you unjust or right or wrong before God. But it's what comes out of the heart. And Luther says, it doesn't matter what I do. Penance, supper, extreme unction. I can't do a single thing that is right before God. He says, I can't get right. What kind of God is it that won't let me get right? And what Luther came to see is what Jake talked about. You can't do anything to get right. Christ alone did it all. Right? Christ alone, the work on the cross, Christ paid that sin solely through the work of Christ are we made right with God. And we are out of time. Are, are the words and the same thing, or are they... Some people will make a large distinction between ordinance and sacrament. And the way in which the Roman Catholic uses sacrament... It is it is it is not right. I am saying that an ordinance is is more the. Some people say the, the ordinance is a memorial view. What I'm trying to say is I don't I don't think. Some people here may have real trouble with using one or the other word. I'm saying that in the way we use them, in in our body in the way we worship as, as a Protestant that follows Jesus Christ, I'm saying I think you can use the term either way, okay? But what's important to understand, when you hear a Roman Catholic say sacrament, that's what he's saying. When you hear Phil last week, me, Clifford, someone else use the word, that's not what they're saying, Okay? we we really are at a time and we've got the the meeting i'll be happy to talk to anyone i'm not expert all right thanks